This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. A million zeros joined together do not unfortunately add up to one, but our fatally short-sighted age thinks only in terms of large numbers and mass organizations, though one could think that the world has seen more than enough of what a well-disciplined mob can do in the hands of a single madman. Those are the words of psychiatrists Carl Jung, which today appear like a dark prophecy many decades before the inception of social media. But what happens if digital actors, state or not, can manipulate that arithmetic, add zeros at will to swell the numbers on wedge topics? A recent three-part investigation by award-winning Indian non-profit news organization, The Wire, into a secret app called TechFog, a powerful tool that hijacks social media accounts and messaging apps and targets thousands with a click of a button, has caused real concern, not just in India, but with many Western journalists who instantly recognize certain online patterns. And I have with me today one of the two investigators, a forensic digital researcher and intelligence threat analyst, who together with Devesh Kumar wrote these articles. Welcome to the bunker, Ayushman Kohl. Thank you so much for having me, uh, and I look forward to being able to speak about um, this very important investigation. Is it fair to say that there are things that we know the app does for sure, and other things that we strongly suspect the app does? Yes, I think that would be a, a as a as a kind of a starting point. That'd be a great way to begin. Okay, so shall we start from the things that? on the balance of probabilities, we can say we definitely know. Absolutely. We've been able to narrow down on four alarming features that we believe should be something that everyone should have great concern about. The first one is the fact that um, operators who use this app have the ability to manipulate social media trends at mass uh, on a range of popular social media platforms. This includes being able to trend content on Facebook, uh, being able to hijack the trending section on Twitter, as well as amplify content on Instagram, WhatsApp, Telegram, uh, among some other platforms. The second most important feature, um, operators can use this, this software to fish inactive WhatsApp accounts belonging to ordinary citizens, uh, political opponents, high-profile journalists, anyone who they're able to see has an inactive WhatsApp account 
they're able to use this feature to send messages to either the frequently contacted of this targeted account or all the contacts of this targeted account. And these messages appear to be coming from the, uh, the account mm. itself. Mm. Yeah. The third most alarming feature is the ability to access a database of private citizens who are categorized according to their occupation, religion, language, age, gender, political inclination. And in some cases, and this was something that was really quite shocking to us um, through the course of the investigation, according to uh, the protected physical attributes. So in this case, for example, they were able to target women journalists uh, mm-hmm. with a category that was women journalists with large breasts. Again, that's something that um, you know, is, is quite alarming in and of itself. Yeah. They can send targeted messages to these categories uh, and use this to auto-reply to these individual or groups uh, by connecting Google Sheets or auto-generating keywords and phrases. Uh, and many of these keywords and phrases we found were abusive and derogatory. And specifically targeted, presumably, to those physical characteristics that they'd, uh, they'd singled out. Absolutely. In some cases, it was uh, directly related to those characteristics, but in other cases, it also included um, sexually aggressive slurs. And finally, the feature that we also thought was really alarming was the ability for all of the accounts that are controlled via this this software to delete uh, those accounts or remap those accounts so that if one of them kind of attracts too much attention, um, they are not able to... uh, you know, catch that account or they can quickly uh, delete that account and erase the all traces of its mm-hmm. activity. Now, uh, I would like to mention at this point that this last feature is something that we were not able to independently verify, but that's largely owing to the nature of the feature itself. Now, I was particularly unsettled by by the WhatsApp um, feature, you know, that, that the app can take over dormant WhatsApp accounts and message your contacts and i've seen uh, a little bit of criticism that from people saying that it's impossible to do that unless your phone has already been infected as it were before that uh, whatsapp account were dorm- went dormant or was deleted or before you changed your phone or whatever um but that's precisely what had happened to one of you, right? Because you tested this by getting the whistleblower to actually message you purporting to be from your account. Um, And it turned out that your phone had already been infected. So uh, just to kind of give our listeners some context, um, this exploit um, was performed for us. So we had a live demonstration of this. Mm. This was early on when we were kind of trying to verify and vet the uh, the original whistleblower that we had. Uh, and this is kind of before we were able to have other people come forward at these other organizations. But Because the investigation, just to tell people, went on for almost two years, right? Yes, it was a, a long and arduous process. Um, but what is uh, interesting is, so we were, we were verifying our original whistleblower and one of the things they kind of mentioned kind of in a throwaway way was oh and we can we can hijack your whatsapp account and we said okay if you can do this do it right now alarmingly they were able to do it within about six minutes um they had been able to hijack the uh inactive whatsapp account of my co-author Devesh. and uh, at this point whatsapp was not even installed on his phone um so they were able to hijack his account and send that that message that we had given them to five of his frequently contacted, and one oh, of those wow. frequently contacted was me. 
we've included the screenshots uh, of this of this kind of the URL that we received uh, in the piece. But uh, alarmingly, we also think about how key WhatsApp is to the overall information environment in the country, especially when it comes to political messaging, political campaigning. Mm. So the ability to exert this kind of influence using one of the most popular, you know, encrypted messaging apps in the country, uh, you know, if not in the world. Now, even more unsettling um, to a journalist was your, your finding that using AI, one's online work can be taken and altered radically. Like converting, for instance, let's say an article I've written into far-right groups into a critique of left-wing groups and post it uh, on a very similar URL that mimics the style, the tone uh, of the original website and is really almost indistinguishable to the original. I mean, I saw a couple of examples you posted and still purporting to be written by the original journalist. And this is an issue that really touches upon, you know, a the idea of what is credible information in today's information age, and b the idea of using perception to kind of color, in other words, very credible information. So in this case, the database itself that allows this is not made by the individuals that we're investigating. This is an uh, an independent database. Uh, it's called GPT three, and it's a text based database. Uh, and this database allows you using just to mim- uh, just kind of manipulating the URL of a source of, of a target article. Let's say you have www.thewire-independenceday.com and, and that might be the URL of the article. Now, if you manipulate just the Independence Day bit of that URL to be uh, Pakistan Independence Day, for example, mm. then that uh, GPT database can essentially generate a article that uh, appears to be talking about something completely different. And uh, what they've done is also train that database so it can even mimic the journalistic and editorial style of, let's say, the Washington Post. Mm. And what they do is they're able to then generate a fake URL. Mm. You feel as if you're you're clicking on the correct URL. And more significantly, um, they usually amplify these articles through WhatsApp groups. So, for example, this happened to me. Um, I had written an article that looked at uh, far-right and neo-Nazi um, transnational groups on Telegram. And they changed this to change it to be uh, looking at left-wing and Pakistani groups in India to make it seem as if I was kind of attacking them. Yeah. Now, okay, so the, those are the things we know it can do. Now, what are the things we are less sure about, but on the whole strongly suspect, let's say, and were there any other things that you thought your sense was were slightly exaggerated or even completely unlikely? Well, we were quite incredulous almost at first because there were such huge claims. But then by verifying every single claim over a period of time, by finding other people who came forward with evidence, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, depending how you look at it, we were not able to disprove any of the central allegations and central claims that the the whistleblower made. Uh, at present, in our in our four-part series, um, the first three parts are related to the investigation, and the fourth part outlines kind of the journey, the story behind the investigation, and some of the questions that we have unanswered. To give you a hint, uh, those questions are related to the size of the operation, many potentially how many centers there are across the country, uh, how many people have access to this this uh, particular application, whether that 
the payment for this application is happening through taxpayer money or through a private uh, fund. You know, there, there are a lot of questions that we haven't, and there's a lot more to this operation that we haven't gone out with. And the reason we kind of published this, and this is something that I, uh, why I always kind of really urge people to read this investigation and, um, you know, why I also believe that it's relevant for people outside of India is because um, this is how we wanted to start this conversation in the sense that there's a lot more to investigate. And beyond India, there is a global industry emerging where people, you know, there are corporations, there are private entrepreneurs who are kind of in this gray space uh, between technology, politics, uh, where they're able to offer some of these for, you know, disinformation for profit services, uh, offer reputation, online reputation management for, for profit services. We're trying to kind of flesh out, A, this global industry, uh, but on the other hand, also the level of sophistication that's now available. It's gone beyond, you know, a bunch of people sitting in troll farms. You know, things have really progressed. There are some very mainstream companies and corporations involved in this industry. So the capabilities and sophistication of the product that they're producing has mm. also significantly increased. And we're obviously very excited to see how uh, more and more kind of journalistic resources are put towards uncovering this aspect of, um, you know, our modern kind of information age, our digital age. Now, Ayush, one of the more disturbing revelations was the targeting of female journalists, uh, especially in line with misogynist abuse. Um, the Guild of Editors has become involved and condemned this. Why do you think women were targeted in this way? Is this something that plays up to cultural norms that are specific to India? Or do you think this is, uh, it goes wider than that? This is a really um, important question. It appears that there is this kind of entrenched ability or plan to raise the social costs for women to speak up online. Now, why exactly they fear the opinions and, and, and kind of ideas and thoughts of these women so much, I, I honestly cannot say. But I, I do think that it is significant that in the recent um, West Bengal elections that took place in India, uh, one of the biggest electoral vote banks for the opposition uh, in that state, uh, Mamta Banerjee, was the women voter. So I wonder if that's maybe that plays into it. But again, that's just something that I can... Uh, no, I mean, that, that, that's fair enough. Um, the investigation has been criticized by some. The Opindian news side, which I should note for our listeners, is a pretty hard right uh, fan of the BJP. Think something akin to Breitbart or Infowars and their relationship to Trump, to give a Western analogy. It wrote that The Wire is a left-wing propaganda portal and that you have invented an imaginary app with superpowers. How do you respond to this? The first of all is that Op India has published an, uh, an article critical of almost every single major media organization and or news site, including the BBC, New York Times, Washington Post, <laughs> uh, as well as denying that Pegasus was a thing. So 
in some ways, it's uh, I'm glad that they noticed us, and I'm glad that they were able to uh, take the time to even read the article. <laughs> it's a badge of honor, basically. I guess. I guess at this point in the Indian <laughs> media system, if you haven't had a uh, piece from Op India about why what you've written is not correct, then you're not really doing much. Um, but going beyond that, um, we were very clear in our editorial style and decision, which is that even though there were some parts that we felt were very important to bring to the uh, the attention of the audience, but at the same time requires more investigation, we've made that very clear. So for example, with the WhatsApp hack, uh, because we don't have access to this, this app, even though that would have been great, uh, as it's operated out of a purpose-built facility, we were able to say, look, this is what we saw. And this is what we require more evidence from. And this is why we've engaged with uh, the social media companies and they're investigating it now to be able to kind of understand more about the back end of it. What's really interesting is that none of the people who, like, for example, Op India, who've criticized the article, they've not been able to explain any of, uh, of those things. So uh, it just seems that they've chosen to attack the publication that went out with it. There has been criticism milder criticism from more independent quarters like tech journalist Samarth Bansal, for instance, who interviewed you at length and ended up describing your work as a grab bag of possibly interesting leads. That's her quote. I have to say, having read the three pieces together and then read Samarth's criticism, um, it, it struck me that you are very open about the stuff you don't know and about the stuff you haven't been able to verify. So for someone to come along and say, well, there's stuff they don't know and stuff they haven't been able to, to verify seems a little strange. What what do you think? Um, I think that uh, there are so many different uh, excellent researchers working in this space. Uh, and we've had a lot of engagement with lots of different researchers and and kind of one of the, I guess, elements that both Devesh and I um, really always try and put forward is that we both kind of come from open source backgrounds. We've gone out with what we were able to prove and we are looking forward to seeing other researchers and experts and journalists also look at this and and kind of expose more parts of this uh, this broader investigation. Hmm. Now, criticism aside, your work has set several hairs running. The the leader of the opposition wrote to the chairman of the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Home Affairs, Anand Sharma, asking the committee to investigate. Sharma has written to the Ministry of Home Affairs seeking a response on, te- on the TechFog investigation. Separately, Congress spokesperson Supriya Srinata has urged the Supreme Court to look into this. Um, do you think this is going through the motion or is the real appetite to find out what's going on and do any of these ways of investigating it have a chance of getting to the bottom of it or is it all just a a, a sort of public show um i would say that there are different levels to this on on one hand we do have a lot of institutional interest unfortunately um the government has yet to give any answers on the pegasus um, investigation which kind of preceded ours so um, I think that is something that will continue but it may not be the most immediate pathway separately and and really commendably the uh, Mumbai police itself has agreed to investigate this as a kind of criminal investigation and one tangible um, change that I've already seen people are beginning to be a little bit more critical 
of uh, some of the trends that they're seeing online. Uh, and also something that is really heartening um, personally is that we've seen um, two of the journalists that were targeted, uh, Rana Ayub uh, and Barkha Dutt, both write uh, op-eds in the Washington Post talking about their experience. And to see those people feel more emboldened uh, is also something that is, uh, I think, really a tangible benefit from having pursued this investigation. Now, Ayesh, I wanted to ask your opinion on this because you've obviously looked at thousands of instances of this happening. And what I want to know is why do you think it is happening? Is it purely that creating a made-up community around extreme opinions legitimizes those opinions? Or does it go even deeper than that? I am reminded of something legal scholar Cass Sunstein once said, that when like-minded people get together, they often end up thinking a more extreme version of what they thought before they started to talk to one another. Well, I mean, I think you've raised a really interesting point. And, and just to kind of build upon that, uh, there's going to be the upcoming UP elections, which for the more international uh, listeners, that's one of the most uh, politically significant states in the Indian uh, election um, yep. because it accounts for the most seats. Uh, for that election, because of COVID, they've made all of the, ra- they've banned rallies. So a majority or the bulk of the political messaging and, and targeting is going to be done through social media or digital media or, you know, essentially using uh, the internet. And beyond that, something that I think is a deeper point um, is the fact that using these platforms, you can target in a way that you could never target before. Mm. And that sort of targeted messaging is something that we experienced in the UK very much during the Brexit campaign where, you know, people on Facebook were being sent uh, adverts that were tailored to their interests. Uh, Which brings me to my final question. As I said at the top, beyond its huge significance in its Indian context, journalists, activists, people who are, uh, who participate in social media instantly recognize patterns that we have all experienced personally. But is that my confirmation bias talking or is there any evidence that other actors in other countries are using this or similar tools? The first point I'd like to raise is that these kinds of abilities didn't just fall out of the sky. You know, what essentially TechFog is, is essentially a refinement and a kind of very polished version of a range of abilities that were already kind of out there in the wild. It's just that they've been able to take all of these different abilities and put them together in a really kind of nice, nifty software that can be used by not the layperson, but at least someone with not too much training or understanding. And these abilities do not just uh, exist in India. Although for what we do say, a lot of us uh, security researchers, is that often these countries uh, are like a testing lab for some of these abilities. Obviously, as a democracy, India has the ability to allow a lot of the people who build such tools to gain a lot of data and information about how these tools could potentially operate in other environments. And the second fact is that um, as the Pegasus investigation has shown, which involves the NSO group in Israel, um, there are a lot of companies that are working in this space. So in this case, I feel like this is something that has uh, international uh, relevance because it's definitely going to be sold and replicated elsewhere. Um, what can be done? How can we get out of this? 
Um, I wish I could say that there was a silver bullet uh, that would cure this uh, kind of disinformation epidemic that we seem to be facing at the moment. But really, one of the most uh, logical next steps is at least to ensure that we have a um, an equal spread of digital resilience, really kind of teaching, um, I think, even in schools, the ability to reverse image search, the ability to spot a bot account. You know, these are things that I think... Mm. It, they are really important parts of navigating the current online space. Um, but beyond that, I think that it, there is a role also for social media companies to work. There's a role for civil society. There's a, there is a role for advocacy groups to raise more attention about this issue. So I think it, it's an issue that has to be tackled on multiple fronts. Well, Ayushman Kohl, thank you so much for your work on this and, and for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for having me. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday mornings, your Start the Week supplement on Mondays, your Culture supplement on Saturday and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. The journalist Rana Ayub topped the list of people targeted. Between January 2021 in May 2021, the app was used to send her a staggering 22,000 abusive tweets. The last word on this podcast rightly belongs to her. I would be lying if I said it hasn't affected me, that I've been able to simply brave on. In fact, the threats, the harassment have made me want to give up journalism. I felt humiliated. I was made a free-for-all for a virtual lynch mob. It was hard to get out of bed. The harassment continues to this day. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker is presented by Alex Andreo with audio production from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker is produced by Yelena Sofronevich and Jacob Archbold. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Our theme tune is by Kelly Dickinson. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Music